Welcome to the Commune Podcast. This is Jeff Krasno. Lately, I have become increasingly interested in mechanism or how things work, specifically how our bodies work. I find that understanding mechanism leads to changes in behavior because when we understand the how, it makes the why way more obvious. I've become that annoying kid. Eat your vegetables, son. But but why? Because they're good for you. Well, why are they good for you? Well, because they have nutrients and stuff. Well, but why do I need nutrients and stuff? Well, you see where this goes. But once you understand how your body metabolizes food, then you also know why you should eat a particular way. And it becomes easier and way more obvious to adopt healthier eating habits. Now, today, I look specifically at meditation. Now, we all sense that meditation is good for us. But why? Well, because it relieves stress. But why? Well, on this episode, I look at the physiological and psychological mechanisms at play when we meditate as a means to understand why we should do it for our physical and spiritual well-being. Away we go. Why should we meditate? What are the benefits conferred by a meditation practice? And how does the practice of meditation really alter the experience of consciousness, of what it is like to be alive moment to moment? Well, these are the topics I want to tackle. And I'll start by conveying an experience that I have every day. Well, I walk down the hallway in my house and I peer into my daughter's bedroom and I'm absolutely convinced that she is the world's greatest meditation teacher ever, <laughs> simply because she is prolific at sitting on her ass and doing nothing. <laughs> now, I'm kind of joking, um, and I'm kind of not, because the world has sanctified this notion that incessant busyness, productivity, and growth are the essential ingredients to a meaningful and fulfilling life. And candidly, I take exception with that. In fact, I contend that sitting in your room quietly alone may not only be one of the most difficult tasks you ever face, but also might be the most useful thing that you can do to have a meaningful and fulfilling life. And let me explain. So our modern culture, with all its incessant dinging and pinging and notifications and Instagram DMs and slacks and emails and texts, has made it impossible to have focused attention. Concentration over long spans of time or long wave thought. We are so easily distracted. And this is where meditation is incredibly useful. So with a Vipassana practice, which is a Buddhist practice, in which we return to the sensation and the rhythm of the breath as thoughts and sensations and emotions arise and subside in consciousness, this practice is a training 
just like when you go to the gym and train your muscles, this is a mental gymnasium where you are training your attention to return to the breath as distractions arise. Now, meditation is often confused with the cessation of thought. That is a misunderstanding. Thoughts will inevitably arise, but meditation teaches us to simply witness thoughts as phenomenon appearing and disappearing and just return our attention to our breath. So meditation is absolutely useful in this respect. And we really need focused concentration. We need long wave thought if we are going to tackle complicated nuanced problems or write books or produce creative works or simply engage in rigorous and thoughtful conversations such that we produce better ideas. We need focused attention. So meditation is a tool to provide that. Now, meditation is also highly associated with stress relief. And it does appear clear that we are living in a period of unparalleled anxiety and fear and uncertainty. And meditation can really address the negative impacts associated with stress. And we know that stress isn't just a psychological disorder or cause a psychological disorder, but it can have downstream physiological impacts and be the provenance of chronic disease. So let me explain a little bit more about some of the mechanisms of the body and how meditation can have, an, have a relationship with them. So our nervous system, our control panel or control center of the processes of our body, located mostly in the brain and goes down the spine and into the gut. And it is mediating and governing a whole variety of systems within our body, many of which are taking place under the crust of consciousness. So as part of the nervous system, the autonomic nervous system is governing things like digestion or respiratory rate or uh, cardiovascular function and urination, etc. Now, there are two primary parts of the autonomic nervous system, this part of our nervous system that mediates these bodily activities. There is the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. Well, the parasympathetic nervous system is most famously associated with rest and digest. Maybe you've had a big meal and all the blood and energy of your body goes to your intestinal tract and your stomach and your small intestines such that we can absorb the nutrients that the body needs for energy production and your respiratory rate slows down, your heart rate slows down, etc. And this state is highly associated with a neurotransmitter or neuromodulator known as serotonin. You've likely heard of it. Serotonin produces sort of a warm and fuzzy, serene and tranquil feeling within the body. It's calming. 
But then you have the sympathetic nervous system, which is most famously associated with fight or flight. It is responsible for our body's involuntary response to perceived threat. Very useful on the Serengeti or the savanna of social media. And it has very much the opposite effect uh, of the parasympathetic nervous system. Your heart rate increases, your respiratory rate increases, blood is sent to your muscles and to your extremities because you need to be alert and spring into action, and digestion slows down. That's why you rarely have gastrointestinal activity when you're playing a sport, for example. Now, the sympathetic nervous system is very concomitant with other kinds of neurotransmitters like cortisol or adrenaline or epinephrine. And these neurotransmitters make you alert and put you in a state of enhanced uh, energy, energized focus. Um, and of course, cortisol and epinephrine in low doses every once in a while is very, very useful because we need to be alert from time to time. But chronic stress that is producing a IV drip of cortisol infusion in your body can have all sorts of negative impacts. So if you are in your sympathetic state, if you are in a cortisol-infused amygdala hijacked state all of the time, cortisol will have a negative impact on your microbiome in your gut, for example. It will lead to dysbiosis and potentially to intestinal permeability, which will then lead to inflammation, which underwrites many of our chronic diseases, like heart disease and diabetes and cancer. Also, chronic cortisol will spike your glucose levels. And if you have hyperglycemia on an incessant basis, you can develop type 2 diabetes, or you will develop excess adipose tissue, or there is this process called glycation, when there's too much glucose in the bloodstream, and, and glucose sugar binds to protein, and that can have really negative impacts on your vascular system and can damage your blood vessels and your endothelium, which can lead subsequently to heart disease. So the process or the practice of meditation is a conscious way that you can move from your sympathetic to your parasympathetic system. And it makes complete sense. You're witnessing and slowing your breath. You're moving out of fight or flight into rest and digest. You're moving from cortisol to serotonin. So the practice of meditation has many psychological and physiological benefits to it. Now, meditation is also useful in witnessing emotions, particularly negative emotions, like anger or jealousy or fear, as phenomenon arising and subsiding in consciousness moment to moment. And when we witness them and as phenomenon, we don't fixate 
on these emotions. We don't identify with these emotions. And it is the identification with emotional phenomena that forms the ego. And the ego can be the source of a tremendous amount of suffering. When we are basing our self-worth through the eyes of others, when we are concerned with the judgment of others, we are living in a place of fear and uh, a place of discomfort. And meditation can really relieve us from a lot of that reality. Now, meditation also has incredible physiological impacts in the brain. It produces additional gray matter, neurons, even later in life. And meditation can also upgrade or upregulate our ability to deal with and manage pain. But I also want to address meditation within the Buddhist context. Because it is in with it is within the Buddhist context that the experience of what it is like to be alive is really transformed from this feeling that we are separate ego selves living amongst separate other ego selves in a separate external universe. We move from that sensation to a sensation of utter, complete interconnectedness, of ocean mind, that we are simply a wave existing within the holobiont of a larger ocean. Now, it's important to grok the essence of Buddhism to truly understand what I'm talking about here. Now, Buddhism is very different from Judeo-Christian religions. It is not dogmatic or doctrinaire or fundamentalist. There are no beliefs that you must espouse. There is no singular godhead in the form of a whiskered old patriarch in a robe and a Merlin's cap tending a moral abacus registering all your personal or sexual transgressions with a guidebook such that he someday may determine your eternal fate. There is nothing like that in Buddhism. Buddhism is really a guidebook or a methodology to experiencing yourself in a different way. And there is a lot you can learn intellectually about Buddhism. You can read the Pali Canon. You can study the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Noble Path or Madhyamaka, the Middle Path, etc. But the essence of Buddhism is really felt as the product of direct experience. And one of those ways of experiencing the sensation of Buddhism is through meditation. So meditation 
in Buddhism takes on many forms, but dhyana or chan in Chinese, zen in Japanese, has a root in drishti, focused gaze or dharana, where you utilize a focus point of attention and become concentrated on that point for long periods of time in order to focus the mind. This brings you into a place of sacred, non-judgmental presence, which is known as mindfulness. That you are simply in the present moment, aware of phenomena arising and subsiding in consciousness. And through the, this practice, certain states of being emerge that really change the quality of existence. And this is known as the Brahma Vihara or the abodes of the Brahma. Uh, the Brahman in Hinduism and Buddhism is the ultimate oneness, the infinite mind of spirit uh, of which we are all ephemeral modifications and reflections. And when you are in deep meditation, you become like the Brahman and you become to inhabit these particular four states of being that are outlined in this idea of Brahma Vihara. So the first one being metta or loving kindness. This is a state of being in which you unequivocally bring goodwill to everyone and everything around you. Then there is karuna or compassion, which again is a sensation because that is the best word that we have for it, where the suffering of someone else is not separate from your own and that you become completely invested in bringing loving kindness and goodwill to the presence of suffering in a manner that specifically intends to alleviate that suffering. Okay, and then there is mudita, which is joy for someone else's joy. In a way, this could be understood as empathy with a positive valence. Essentially, you're taking on the emotional clothing of somebody else, but in a way that's always effusive and positive and joyful. And the last sensation or state of being that you begin to inhabit through the practice of meditation is known as upeka or equanimity or non-attachment. And this can sometimes be confused with lack of ambition or lack of action, but that is a misunderstanding. That we can be ambitious, we can bring our best selves into the world through action without necessarily being 
attached to the end result, that we are focused on process and not product. Because part of Buddhism is understanding that there is only process because all we have is this moment of the everlasting now. So when you become focused on process and eschew this notion of product, then you can live in alignment with your highest principles moment to moment. Because the only thing that matters is how you are going to focus your attention right now. And again, right now. And again, right now. So when you begin to practice a meditation, uh, when you begin to employ a meditation practice on a regular basis, these are the byproducts of that practice. And you can only glimpse them as a product of direct experience. So if you are someone that is going through your day, through your quotidian life, in the absence of joy or compassion or empathy or equanimity and serenity, then why not try it? Because it is there for you at any time free of charge. All you need is your breath. And that is something you always have until you don't. So there is every reason in the world, especially in this moment of distraction, of uncertainty, of anxiety, of fear, of lack of compassion, of over-attachment to one's opinions and biases. There's every reason in the world to employ a meditation practice. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Commune Podcast. Feel free to drop me a line any old time at jeffk at onecommune.com. And if so inclined, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's all from the Commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you. <laughs>